The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So we're talking about this idea of humanity hardwired, which is kind of God's perfect plan for humanity. And as I was thinking about this week and getting ready to teach, I was thinking, what would be like a perfect plan in my life? You know, like what, what would I think back on? What was something that most people would think of that was kind of a, something they spent a lot of time planning? And I thought, well, in most people's lives, a perfect, a perfect plan or something that they really wanted to go well would be their wedding, Right. We spend lots of time planning our wedding, especially the ladies. It's a very important day. For most of us, it only happened once, hopefully. Hopefully, more likely, after today, it only happened once. Um, So I was thinking back to Melissa and my wedding. It was 22 years ago, this coming May, uh, quite a long time. Uh, We did still have weddings back then. Um, But I was thinking back to that because there was all this planning that went into it, all this complicated details. And we live down here, but Melissa's from Kentucky, so we decided to get married up there. Unfortunately, they don't have indoor plumbing in Kentucky. (laughs) I'm going to pay for that one later. Just kidding. There was indoor plumbing in almost every house. Um, But as we got ready to go to our wedding, there's a lot of details, especially when you're doing a wedding that's away from home and So we arrive in Kentucky, all excited about getting married, and we get there, and the first thing we find out is none of the bridesmaids' dresses fit. Not a single one of them. And some of them are not even close. Our maid of honor actually had to go out and buy another dress, which was not even the right color, in order to be in our wedding. So we get there, that's starting to go on, and you're starting to think, oh, no, we did all this planning, and now it's starting to fall apart. We're like, okay, let's just roll with it. It's going to be fine. This is an important day. We're just going to enjoy it. So all the bridesmaids get ready at an off-site location, and they decide to travel to the church. Well, they all get into, I think it was a limo, and they all get in a limo and drive to the church. When they get to the church, they realize that there's one missing. My sister. Needless to say, the sister-sister-in-law relationship wasn't starting out the best. My future wife left my sister behind. So, and she was pretty upset about it, I'll just be honest. I'll spare you the details. So, they finally get her there. So, we get to the church. Everything seems to be going pretty well. And in walks a couple of female friends of mine that I didn't think were coming. Um, And that, in and of itself, is not terrible, but... They were dressed like they were going to a frat party. So they walk in, and Melissa's like, who is that? And I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) I'm like, well, there's some friends that, you know, I didn't know they were coming. And they, like, came from, like, Chicago to, to come to the wedding. And I'm like, you know, she's like, well, tell me about them. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this today. I'm like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just friends. We're just friends, which is true for the record. So anyway, they come, which was fine. Again, fine, even though they were dressed for a frat party, except that the photographer kind of took a liking to them. <laughs> they appear in several of our wedding photographs. <laughs> Had nothing whatsoever to do with the wedding party. Um, it's a little, little annoying. Speaking of wedding photographs, 
Um, typically, there's many different wedding photographs that happen. Um, usually, the bride and groom are kind of the center piece of that wedding photograph. You know, you have photographs of just you, and then you with your family, and you with the extended family, and you with the, the people in the wedding, the bride's bridal party, and, you know, so interestingly enough, the picture of us with my family is a little bit different. I'm going to show you that picture. <laughs> Apparently, we weren't the most important thing going on that day, because we're way off to the side. My parents are in the middle. My sister and her husband are actually closer to the middle than we are. They got married six weeks later. So it just was really one of those kind of messy days. But it doesn't end there. I have one more thing I want to share with you. It's a song I think you'll probably recognize. If you guys could play this little clip. Thank you. How many of you recognize that song? That is mine and Melissa's song. It's not the song we picked. (laughs) The DJ didn't have the song we picked. So we get ready to do our dance and this song comes on. I'm like, new song, here we go. Like, this is going fantastic. So anyway, the reception was nice. We had it in one of her uncle's houses in the backyard. He had a big, nice house and had a nice reception. We danced to our new song. Um, And as we left the reception, we were very excited because we had planned to spend our first night at this really fancy place in downtown Louisville called the Galt House. Um, It's a very popular, fancy place. And, you know, if you know Melissa and I, we're not really fancy people, so we were pretty excited to get to do something like that. And and, uh, so we're driving down there. I had rented a, uh, this is going to date me a little bit, but a a Chrysler New Yorker was our car I had rented. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So we're cruising down to downtown Louisville, going to the Galt House. We get there. It's really fancy, really nice. We get up to our room, and... It was horrific. Um, the, it couldn't have been more like something my grandmother designed if she had been there. It had curtains for wallpaper. There was this creepy picture of this lady looking down. So I'm like, what is wrong with this place? Well, there was this little thing in the room that told you some history of the hotel. Apparently the hotel started out as a brothel. I'm like, this is not going well. It's my wedding night. So we say, all right, I've got this carriage ride planned. Let's change and go down and take this ride in the carriage. It'll be romantic. It'll be nice. Those of you that know me know I'm extremely romantic. It's actually the last time I was romantic. So we get ready to change and realize that somebody did not pack Melissa's overnight bag correctly. She doesn't have all of her clothes, so she has to wear part of my clothes to go on the carriage ride. It was pretty bad. So anyway, we survived it 22 years later. Still here. So. But it's one of those things where if you think of the things in your life that you spent time to make a perfect plan, 
That's the thing that pops into your head. It's your wedding. It's so important. It's such a monumental day. And today we're going to talk about being wired for marriage as we wrap up the series. And I love this part of these verses because as you look at these two first verse, these first two chapters in Genesis, I believe that this is the only part of the Bible that's not tainted by the idea of sin. It's God's perfect plan for our life, and he lays it out step by step by step. As you remember, we talked in week one about this paradise that God created for man to live in. And then we talked in week two about how God engineered us to be wired for rest and how important that is in our life. And then as week three came, Pastor Justin talked about how we're made in the image of God and how God created us to be like him and to grow closer to him. And then week four, we talked about how everything God created was perfect, that God is the only being that understands perfection. And then in week five, we talked about work and how we're wired for work and how work was not always something that was difficult or painful. It was originally meant to be something that was enjoyable. And then in week six, we talked about companionship. We touched a little bit on marriage there, but we talked about how we're all wired for companionship, how we all crave that human interaction. And then last week, Pastor Roby did an amazing job of talking about how we're wired male and female, male or female, and how that is planned from the beginning, and there's no exceptions to that. So I believe today, as we talk about the way that we're wired for marriage, I believe this is the culmination of God's perfect plan. It's how God said, hey, I'm going to wrap this thing up, and this is the bow on top. And now some of us are sitting here today, and you're saying, well, you know, I'm been married for a long time, we kind of got it figured out, or I don't know if I'm ever going to get married, or I'm not married yet. And here's the thing. Almost all of us at some point will get married or will be married. So I think this is one of those things that it's easy to check out and go, yeah, that's not for me, but I think it's something that will all apply to each of us. I want to look at the, the text, and then we're going to break it down a little bit because I think there's some interesting things to learn here. Now, The cool part about the first two chapters is it being God's perfect plan, it kind of gives us that blueprint so we can get a glimpse of what the world was supposed to look like. Unfortunately, in chapter three, it falls apart, but we're going to talk about that starting next week. Um, But I do want to take some time and just look over these last few verses. So we're going to start in Genesis 2, and we're going to start with verse, verse 15. Verse 15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then we're going to skip up to verse 18. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, repeat with me, fit for him. Very important concept. Then verse 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I want to break this down because 
I want to look at this a little differently. I want to look at marriage a little differently today because I think there's an interesting message here because of where this is placed in the Bible that I think will lead us in a different, in a different way than, say, in Ephesians 5 or something like that. In verse 15, he says, let's look at that one more time. Verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, the interesting thing there is the word, the Hebrew word that's used for work means to prepare and tend the prepare and tend the garden. Now remember, at this point in the creation story, work is not a bad thing. It's an enjoyable thing. So he puts Adam in the garden to work it, to prepare and tend it. Now the Hebrew word that's used for keep, it says to work and keep the garden. The Hebrew word that's worked for keep denotes like protecting the garden. So it's man's job to not only tend the garden, but to also protect it. And I think that'll make a lot more sense as we get into the story of Eve. Let's look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Another interesting point. It's the first time that God says something is not good. Now, do you think at this point God said, Oops, made a mistake. This is not good. I don't think so. I think sometimes God does things to make sure that we notice what's going on. So he took a moment there to say, it's not good for man to be alone. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's the first time that he says, it's not good. Let's move on. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God said, this is not good. Man doesn't have a helper. I need to find one, right? So he parades every creature before Adam. Adam is then responsible for naming them. I saw there's a hilarious bit that a Christian comedian, Brad Stein, does about this. He talks about Adam naming the animals and how huge a task that is. And he says, you know, it's cool because I'm sure Adam at the beginning was like real excited about it, getting to name all the animals. So he's coming up with these exciting names like hippopotamus and rhinoceros. And then as it got about 10 hours into the day, he's like, cow, cow, I don't know, yak. And then as he got tired and tired, he just started naming them what they would do. So as God brought the insects along, he's like, fly. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine how frustrated the birds were. They're like, fly? It's a fly. So God steps in and he says, whoa, whoa, time out. Time out. Um, I was going to stop you at the grasshopper, <laughs> but this is really getting out of hand. Otherwise, fish would be called a swim. Dogs would be called a drool. Cats would be called a waste of money. (laughs) All the cat people are leaving now. I have a cat, just, okay, so I have a cat. His name's Willie. His given name is Williams. We call him Willie. Had him for 12 years, so I'm not a cat hater. But I just feel like cats should stay where they belong in the middle of the street. Sorry, sorry. I'm in a lot of trouble now. Just kidding. I love my cat. I love my cat. You can ask my kids. Actually, don't ask them. 
But God parades all the creatures in front of Adam and he has them. But, and does he do that because God doesn't know where to find him a helper? Is God really searching? No, that's not what he's doing. He's reminding us that there's only one helper, one companion fit for us. So he's demonstrating to Adam and he's helping Adam appreciate what he's about to do for him. Let's see what else happens. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God's looking to create this helper for the man. But the word that's used for helper there does not mean somebody exactly like the man. It means someone who can compliment him. Because here's the thing. God could have just bent down and scooped up another pile of dust and created a woman that had the same characteristics of Adam, right? He could do anything. But that's not what he wanted. He wanted to provide someone who could be an accompaniment to Adam, somebody who could help him in the things that he struggles with. He forms woman from the flesh of man. I've got this amazing quote from Matthew Henry that I think encapsulates this so well, way better than I could say it. I want to put this up, and we're going to read it together. That the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Leave that up just a minute. I mean, that's it. He made, him out of the, he made woman out of a rib at the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So God's provided the perfect complementary helper for Adam. And then it's cool to see how Adam reacts. Let's look at verse 23. Now Adam's had all the creatures of the world paraded in front of him, which is, I mean, that's got to be pretty amazing. I mean, it's relatively new at that point. It's pretty amazing. He's all these interesting creatures. He's got all this glory of the Garden of Eden, all the perfection that's around him. And this is like the first time we see him get excited. Verse 23 says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Obviously, he was still a little tired from naming the animals because that's not really creative. But he was so excited. Imagine living, imagine being Adam and all the things you've experienced over the last six days, whatever period of time we agree that is. But then when woman is created, he finds a new excitement. And then verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this denotes the incredible closeness of the marriage bond because God basically says, your marriage is more important than your relationship with your parents. Now think about that for a minute because that also works the other way. If my marriage is more important than our relationship with my parents, that also means it's more important than our relationship with my kids because they're going to get married and that relationship is going to become the most important relationship in their life. So our marriage becomes the most important thing, the most focal point of our life. 
So if that's the case, so God's created this perfect plan. And the culmination of that perfect plan is marriage. He's saying, I've got, this is the perfect plan, and this is how I'm going to finish it off. Then what must his purpose be for marriage? Is it to make marriage easy? Is he like, you know, I'm going to finish it off and give him something easy to, to do? I mean, has marriage ever been easy? It's an interest, another interesting quote here. There's a, in the 17th century, there was a great Christian writer named Francis, Francis de Salas. He was a gifted spiritual mentor, and people would, would correspond with him about their spiritual struggles. And a lady wrote to him and said, Hey, you know, I've got an ailing father, and my friends are encouraging me not to get married but to stay single, take care of my father, and then once he passes, remain celibate for my life as a show of my devotion to God. So this is what DeSalas writes back to him. I've got a quote from him. The state of marriage requires more virtue and constancy than any other. It is a perpetual exercise of mortification from this time plant in spite of the bitter nature of its juice you may be able to draw and make the honey of a holy life. So DeSalas says, look, your friends are trying to tell you that being single is a more difficult path, but I'll tell you marriage is a much bigger challenge. And it's through that difficult path that you'll find holiness. And I think that's what God's showing us today. He's saying, you know what? The purpose of marriage is not to be easy. It's not chiefly your own fulfillment. It's to draw each other towards holiness. This means that God didn't necessarily design marriage to be comfortable. He didn't necessarily say, you know what? It's going to be fun all the time. It's going to be easy. I mean, should we really expect cohabitation with another human being that's as flawed as we are to be comfortable? Here's the shocker of the day. It means he didn't design marriage to be primarily about our own fulfillment. It's interesting because um, I was reading a, a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. You guys know we all have a little <clears throat> man crush on Tim Keller. But he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and I've, I've kind of made it a lifelong study to study a few things. One is marriage, one's um, you know, parenting, all that stuff. So in, in reading a lot of books about marriage, you know, they kind of tend to start sounding the same. But Tim Keller's done an amazing job of making it different. And he says this. He says, most people are searching for Mr. Right. I mean, how many of you know somebody that's got that checklist? You got the checklist of all the characteristics that the perfect person's got to have. So he says, people spend their life searching for this Mr. or Mrs. Right. And they have this checklist of qualifications. He said, what they don't realize is if they find them, they're not going to marry you. Besides the fact they don't exist. There is nobody that's perfect. Nobody can make, I've had that conversation so many times. Like nobody, there is nobody that matches all those, checks all those boxes. But one of the biggest conceptions about marriage is that if we find the right person, it's easy and comfortable and always fulfilling. 
So many marriages today disintegrate because the focus is on the wrong thing. Some people get married because they're physically infatuated with each other. Does that last? Some people get married because of financial security. What happens when that dries up? We've all seen that happen. Not too long ago, 2008. What about success? Sometimes we get married because the partnership makes sense. We're both like, you know, really successful and it's kind of that whole success vibe. What happens when that falls apart? Here's one that I see a lot. I call it the empty nester syndrome. People get married and they spend their entire married life focused on their kids. Making our kids successful, helping them have more than we had, helping them get ahead, helping them be smarter, go to the best college, get the best job, be the star on the sports team. And I don't think any of that's bad. But if that's all you're focusing on, what do you do when they move out? You know that you have that wedding and you're sitting after the wedding, just married off your daughter or your son. You look at each other and you're like, what now? Our, the focus, all our energy has gone into this and now that's done. If you haven't built something else into your life to focus on, Seen so many marriages fall apart at that point. People have been married 20 and 22 and 24 and 25 years, and all of a sudden they're getting divorced, and you're like, hey, what happened? Well, you know, our kids moved out, and then we realized we didn't have anything in common. What if your marriage had a common theme that lasted for a lifetime? What if there was something that you focused on together? Because isn't that true we're drawn together when we have a common focus? Isn't that true like at work? You know, you work harder with the people around you when you're working on a project or like a sports team. They draw together when they're trying to win the championship. What if our marriage had a common focus that never goes away? A couple of months ago, we talked to you guys about what it looks like to become what we call a mathetase. Uh, which mathetes is a Greek word. It basically means disciple. But we wanted to use that word because disciple has become so watered down in our, in our culture. And we believe that word reminds us that it, disciple means fully devoted follower of Christ. That means all in. And Pastor Roby shared about mathetes and what that means and what it means to, to be a mathetes and what that looks like. What if our marriage, what if the primary focus of our marriage became to help each other become mathetes? How would that change how we do things? What if it was about that instead of our kids or success or money or or nice cars or whatever else it happens to be? What does that look like? Well, the first step, becoming a mathetase, you have to be rescued. You have to give your life over to Christ. I mean, you can't become more like Christ Christ, if you don't turn your life over to him because you both have to be focused on the same goal. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're like, okay, 
I don't disagree, but I'm married to somebody that doesn't believe that. That's a hard one. But I'll tell you this. We have to trust God. And we have to know that God wouldn't put us in a situation that he didn't have a plan for. And I would say if that's your situation, if you're in a marriage right now and and you've been rescued and the person you're in a marriage with has not been rescued, then I think your goal is still the same. It's still to help them become a mathetes. It's just that they've got to take that first step. So I'd be spending time praying about that and looking for those opportunities and trying to find a way to help them see what you've already seen. Part of being rescued is being baptized, you know, sharing that with our church. One of the coolest things I get to do is be a part of a baptism where a couple's getting baptized together. Because the cool part about that is it's, in my mind, it's like a two-level baptism. It's like they're proclaiming what they've done in their heart, first of all, individually. And then they're modeling what marriage is, which is a joint pursuit of God. So when I see people get baptized as a couple, it's such a cool thing. Second part of being a mathetes, you have to be awestruck together. What does awestruck mean? Awestruck means we begin to appreciate God and all that he's done. We begin to understand, we begin to worship him. How do you do that? Well, it's not that complicated. What if you began praying together? Some of us are like, oh no. I don't even like to pray in front of people. Well, it doesn't have to be some fancy theological prayer full of these and thous. We don't pray that way. Maybe it's something as simple as, let's take a couple minutes before we leave for work in the morning and just pray for our day. Let's take a couple minutes before we go to bed at night and just pray with each other. Maybe one of you fall asleep while you're praying. It's okay. But it's that exercise of praying together and beginning to talk to God together that's so important. Second thing would be studying God's word together. You're like, oh, I don't even understand what it's saying. How am I going to talk about it with somebody? Well, you've got to pick something that's not super complicated to start off with. Maybe it's just a couple of verses each day. Maybe you just turn over the book of Proverbs. There's no more applicable scripture than the book of Proverbs. And you just pick a couple of verses each day and you read it and you talk about how you're going to make it part of your day. Or maybe you flip over to the Gospels, you flip over to the book of Matthew and you say, I want to just read about Jesus' life. And you read a couple of verses each day and you just figure out how to apply it to your day. It doesn't have to be this deep theological thing. It doesn't have to require all kinds of uh, amazing theological terms. It's just a process. It's a start. Third thing would be worshiping together. Maybe worshiping together is just being here as a family. Maybe it's just being here on Sunday, but maybe it's, maybe it's you have your own kind of worship music that you enjoy. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's just putting some worship music on during the day when you're working at home, or when you're home on a Saturday. And then I think one of the most effective ways to become a mathetes as a couple is community group. Because what better way to do what God's called us to do as a couple than to do it with those who are also doing it. I mean, and a community group, is it's pretty simple. It's a group of people, not just couples, 
but it's a group of people, all different kinds of people, who are taking whatever scripture we've taught on Sunday and talking about how am I going to apply it to my life. Again, it's not super theological. It's not scary. You're not going to be put on the spot. It's just people getting together and saying, hey, what they said this weekend was interesting, but I don't really know how to do that. How do you, well, give me some, you know, it's sharing ideas. It's like, hey, he said you could pray like this, but here's what, here's what me and Melissa do. We do this, and it works for us. And you're like, oh, that's really cool. We could do that. Really encourage you to consider that. And then the last part of this taste thing is to be mobilized together. Mobilized comes in different forms. One of the parts of being mobilized is giving, is managing your finances. One of the number one causes of trial in marriage is financial issues. What would it be like if you decided to manage your finances through the lens of what would make God happy? Wouldn't that make the decisions easier? About this time last year, we did a series called Fear the Moth, which was a three-part series basically on how to manage your finances as a Christian. I would encourage you, if that's something you struggle with, go back and listen to it. It's on the website. Great place to start when you're figuring out, how does God want me to manage my money? Second thing under mobilized would be serving together. Find an opportunity to serve together. You know, just a place to get involved. There's an easy opportunity next week, next Easter, we're trying to get some people to jump in just for that one day. There's a thing in your bulletin where you can, you can sign up. Maybe that's a great way to check it out, no strings attached. Maybe just say to your wife, hey, let's do greeting next week or let's do the parking team. Let's just do it together and see how it goes. The next one's my favorite. You probably already know this. Missions. You guys often hear us talk about how It's an incredible experience to take your kids on a mission trip because our kids today need that perspective. I think the same applies to your marriage. What an incredible thing to go on a mission trip together. I feel like going on a mission trip is like putting your spiritual growth in a microwave because you are immersed in a culture that makes you a little uncomfortable because it's different. You're seeing God work in ways that you don't expect, which is humbling. And you just encounter people that love God for who he is, that can't imagine having what you have. What if you jumped in and went on a mission trip together? Melissa and I have had some of our best times spending fun day with our compassion kids. There is no substitute for being able to love someone and them love you back that you only spend six hours a year with. Our compassion kids are amazing. We see them about six hours a year. But it's some of the best six hours of our life. And then one last thing, one scary one. What about sharing your faith as a couple? Yeek, you had me until that. But aren't a lot of us who are a little nervous about sharing our faith? It's tricky and you don't know what they're going to ask, but what if you were together? What if you invite some neighbors over? See where God takes it. It's interesting because 
if you're prepared, God makes it easy. You don't have to wait for, you're not looking for the, you know, you're not secretly going, Jesus, behind, you know, hoping they'll ask you what that means. <laughs> you know, if you're prayerful and you're prepared, God will provide the conversation. What a cool way to experience this mathetase process. There's a story that I think is such an incredible picture of marriage. It's about two brothers that worked in a common field and a common mill. Each night they divided whatever grain they had produced and each took his portion home. One brother was single and one was married with a large family. The single brother decided that his married brother, with all those kids, certainly needed more grain than he did. So at night he secretly crept over to his brother's granary and gave him an extra portion. The married brother realized that his single brother didn't have any children to care for him in his old age. Concerned about his brother's future, he got up each night and secretly deposited some grain in his single brother's granary. One night they met halfway between the two granaries and realized what the other was doing. What if our marriage became about, not about what can I get back, but how can I help the person who I've committed my life to become more like Christ? Regardless of what it cost me, regardless of whether they help me or anything else. What if you one night met in between the two granaries and realized that you had both helped each other get to a level that you didn't think you could get to? Isn't that where true joy comes from? What if it wasn't about what makes me happy? What if it wasn't about what brings me fulfillment? What if it wasn't about comfort? But what if it was about what will make God happy? There's one more quote I want to share with you. There's an interesting parallel that's drawn between the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Jesus on the cross. I want to read this quote for you. It's from Augustine. And the quote says, When he slept on the cross, he bore a sign. Yea, he fulfilled what had been signified in Adam. For when Adam was asleep, a rib was drawn from him, and Eve was created. So also, while the Lord slept on the cross, his side was transfixed with a spear, and the sacraments flowed forth whence the church was born. For the church, the Lord's bride was created from his side, as Eve was created from the side of Adam. But as she was made from his side, no otherwise than while sleeping, so the church was created from his side, no otherwise than while dying. God took a perfect Adam, and he put him to sleep, and he cut a hole in his side, and he removed a rib, And then he fixed it. He took a perfect body and he sacrificed it to create woman. In the same way, he took a perfect child, his child, Jesus, and he hung him up on a cross and he let him suffer the punishment of our sins so that we can get a gift that we can't get any other way. And what an amazing symbolism as we think about how knowing that God had this plan from the beginning that he gave us just a little glimpse of what he was going to do. I know that some of you are here today and and that's a step you haven't taken and and maybe you're feeling God tug on your heart a little bit and you're you're knowing that's a step you need to take and I just want to tell you it's a it's not a hard step. It's it's a, just a it's a it's a surrender really. It's a surrender of your life to God. It's it's simply saying 
I know I can't save myself, so I must rely on God's grace. It's simply saying, I'm going to accept the free gift of Jesus on the cross. And I want to give you a chance right now to do that. So I'm going to ask everybody if you would bow your heads. If you're here today and you want to take that step, I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer. You can just repeat after me at your seat and take that first step. And it goes like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. But I know that you've given the sacrifice that can allow me to overcome that. And Lord, I just accept that sacrifice. I want to make you Lord of my life. I want to take this first step that will change my marriage and make it an eternal thing. And you just thank him. You say, thank you, Lord, for giving me that opportunity. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.